Hi, I'm your host, Connor Byrne, and welcome back to That's What I Call Marketing, the podcast where you will hear from the leading lights in the marketing world and listen to their unique stories. Today, I'm joined by Anthony Fletcher. Anthony is the former CEO of Grey's, the healthy snack company, and he is now founder of Believe in Science, where he has launched his first product, a healthy donut, under the brand Urban Legend. I saw Anthony speak at a marketing event about four years ago in Scotland and really enjoyed hearing him talk about the approach he takes to marketing. So I randomly sent him a message and he graciously gave up his time to chat to me about the things he has learned through his career. We chat about how he moved from science to marketing at Innocent Smoothies, how his approach of knocking on doors got him into greys. He shares his views on some of the mistakes marketers make and how in some ways we let ourselves down with senior peers in how we talk about marketing. And we chat about his new venture and how the insight about changing not how we consume, but what we consume, led him to set up his new company. Anthony, thanks a million for joining me on That's What I Call Marketing Podcast. Great to be here. Um, I'm going to dive right in because there's lots lots to talk about. Um, first of all, uh, your background, chemistry. You went from chemistry to marketing. Please tell me how that happened. I didn't go directly from chemistry <laughs> to marketing. I mean, the, 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 I, I, I did study science and I did do um, you know scientific research, but I wanted to be an entrepreneur. Uh, and I wasn't one of these incredibly brave people who at university just, you know, kind of goes off and, you know, you know, starts their own thing. And instead, I got very lucky and I knocked on the door of Fruit Towers, Innocent Smoothies, when it was really small and basically announced myself as <laughs> <laughs> interested in a job. And they ended up giving me one. So um, and my first job wasn't in marketing. It was in manufacturing. So I, I used to be responsible back in the day for um, making Innocent Smoothies. Wow. Fascinating. Um, and great. I love that kind of the bravery of just knocking on the door and going, you know, because I remember Innocent, they came out. It was just like this fascinating. It was like this cool brand. There was nothing like it at the time. Like it was, you know, the vans that were covered in the grass, all that kind of stuff. It felt like really, you know, a different type of company. Was that what drew you to them and that kind of entrepreneurial spirit that you were kind of drawn to? Yeah, I mean, I think they said on the side of their bottles, drop in. So I think that involved me <laughs> just literally drop in and go, you know, you know, do you need any help? But I've tended to find entrepreneurs need lots of help. So people who turn up, <laughs> they can appraise pretty quickly whether they, you know, of the, of the thousand problems you're facing on any given day, whether that person, you know, might be able to help you. And many years later, they, they, uh, they admitted they, they only hired me because they <laughs> believed I was probably good at maths <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, wouldn't make too many mistakes with how many smoothies need to go, you know, how much mango you need in smoothies and bottles and, 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 and all the rest of it. Um, but you did move in then from that manufacturing piece into kind of the marketing side and you were looking after some of the brand piece. Yes, and yeah. I, look, I, I mean, I just saw mag- marketing from a distance as absolutely magical. And it also seemed to be, you know, at the heart of things. And, you know, I was in love with Innocent and I was in love with startup businesses and I wanted to learn as much as I can. And marketing, you know, in that business, as in many businesses, is really at the heart of things. So mm. you got to see the whole business and even better, kind of steer where you thought it should go. That's fascinating. I, you know, it's really interesting that you you looked at that marketing and thought, saw it as magical because I think sometimes people see it as, you know, 
I don't want to say wasteful, but like a, an extravagance almost, especially in, in, in a startup and a growing brand, you know, how you kind of, but obviously at Innocent, it was, it was really kind of central to what they were doing. Like it, it was everywhere, I guess. Well, I don't I mean, maybe I had some of those views, right? you know, misconceptions on marketing. Um, and, and the more I got to see it, the more I got to see the structure and the levers and how it could influence things. I was like, wow, this makes a lot of sense. Um, but I wouldn't say marketing as a discipline is instinctive from a distance. Yeah. Um, you know, and is much mis- misunderstood, I think, by other teams. Yeah. And so were you able to kind of break down some of that misunderstanding at your time at Innocent or were you learning from others that were doing it? Well, I, I, I think one of my big takeaways is just how radically different different teams look at the world and how little time they have for the troubles of other teams because they're so consumed with their own and how little they understood what really goes into manufacturing or sales or, or, or marketing. And, you know, I, I felt that move between two very different teams. It's not just that you learn different things. One of the takeaways was just like, my God, this is like two different, completely different animals, <laughs> even in this relatively early stage business. Um, and you know, I, I think that's a more general truth. Yeah, yeah. It's a, uh, how do you bridge, as you say, how do you bridge that gap then in companies that are, you know, maybe bigger or even, as you say, smaller companies? It's, you know, when time is, time is poor for everybody. Actually, I don't think if a company's big or small, everyone's time poor. Right? Like, that's just a fact. Uh, are there easy ways to bridge that ga- those gaps, do you think? Um, or or is it just kind of, you have to invest the time? I mean, if I'm talking about, you know, marketing specifically. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think one of the real fundamental problems with marketers is that they're not very good at communicating something which does have a certain amount of structure with it to the rest of the business. And it's um, also wildly ironic that marketers are not yeah. good at communicating. And I think one of my pet problems, you know, I, I think with marketing is they invent all this jargon, which gets in the way of explaining the really clever and important things they do. And um, not only is there all this jargon, but it seems to evolve. You know, mm. what was called brand personality five years ago is now called something else. And tone of voice is, you know, replaced copywriting. And, yeah. you know, uh, you know I, 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 I do think it, you know, I, I, I deeply feel that marketing is the most strategic, important part of any con- business which has to deal with consumers and i'm sure it's the same for b2b um but i think it's massively misunderstood by the organization i do think it struggles because of that to um you know act in that way that's interesting i'm gonna i want to get back to that point a bit later on but i do want to move to your next move which was to to graze which people know as kind of the healthy snacks in a box beautiful but your initial experience of Grey's was a product that you thought was terrible but had huge potential and then you knocked on their door is that correct yes yeah, so I, I, one of the beta Grey's boxes was delivered to the innocent fruit towers oh wow and everyone was clustered around it and everyone was talking about you know digital trends at that time and you know circumventing the retailer and being able to go direct to the you know the, the you know the end consumer or, or shopper and then uh, I remember the box opened and there was this kind of deflation amongst everyone because the products were pretty poor. And there's some sliced up apple and some cashews and all in these kind of plasticky tubs. Um, 
but I was in love with the concept. I was like, hang on, this, is, this, is, this isn't just a brand idea or a product idea. This is a business model idea. Um, and I, I managed to get a, a job at Gray's in the same way as Innocent, as I just literally went down and knocked on their door on the Felton Industrial Estate. Um, <laughs> they were definitely more confused by Innocent. <laughs> People turning up and knocking on doors. Um, but, but again, the same thing was true. They were like, well, you know, you know, here's all our problems. And I'm like, well, I'm sure, you know, I'm happy to take any job because I think you guys are onto something. So what was it about it that you, you thought this is fascinating? Was it health? Was it like, you know, what were the elements that you were just like, I this think is... you were looking at the early days of Amazon and, you know, you know, digital disruption was coming, but there seemed to be all these categories which were immune. Um, and believe it or not, there the, the debate was still going on whether fashion would, you know, ever go online. Right. And, you know, nobody thought that, individual brands selling to consumers you know people would laugh at you you know that that was that was that was going to work and i don't know i thought that there was a lot of parallels between what was you know data and being able to develop products and being able to speak directly to consumers and control the experience or create different experiences i was like these are these are all all these ideas which were in other industries i thought were just as relevant to food brands um, now, admittedly, you had to get around the rather big problem of why somebody would want some snacks posted to them. But <laughs> there was all these other reasons why I was like, this is an extraordinary way of doing business. It, it has all these solutions to problems which are pretty entrenched in fast moving consumer goods. So how so I, again, it, it was a fascinating you know, model. And now obviously people will know Gray's more, you know, they see it in the shops. It's, you know on the on the counters and, and all that but at, at that time it was a direct consumer you were going online you were ordering your grays box it was getting posted to you how did you go about changing that behavior you know for i guess for a category almost yeah i, I mean one of the big advantages of direct consumers you can follow the trail of breadcrumbs um the data and the feedback from consumers and it's a very agile environment with you know Fast-moving consumer goods is very strategic. You line up all your troops and you send them into battle, and you know you can't really manoeuvre <laughs> that much. You know if you've got it, if you've got it wrong. Um, direct consumer. We had our own factory. We came up with these solutions, such as printing product pr- product packaging online. So you know you could literally change product a five-minute decision on how it was positioned or what health claim was in it, or you know introduce a new product or drop a product. Right. But I, I still maintain that Grace was. <laughs> absolutely atrocious when it started but because it was a direct consumer business it was able to listen to its consumers and respond and even extraordinary things like you could just look up consumers who lived near the factory and i used to offer to meet them in starbucks <laughs> and people would turn up and you could have back-to-back qual meetings wow. all afternoon with consumers for the price of four or five coffees wow. you talk about whatever you wanted and if you you want to talk about something slightly different, you'd organise some slightly different ones on Tuesday next week and or go for a slightly different set of consumers. And that was before you twigged that there was this fire hose of data pouring into the business through the kind of online interactions or you could send surveys to anyone you wanted and get a response in a couple of hours or, you know, kind of, you know, which is all kind of, I think, pretty well understood. But, you know, it, it was all expanding on this theme that by exposing yourself to the consumer, you can work things out a bit quicker about what you're getting right and wrong and it, it it is fascinating just like that ability to 
you know, those insights you can get from talking to somebody. And I, I mean, obviously people being open to talk to you, they were obviously fans of the product. And is that part of it as well where, you know, a direct consumer, they feel more of a connection to, to the product and want it to be successful in a way? I think, yeah. I mean, if you communicate in the right way, you know, and, you know, what is your unboxing experience and how much do yeah. you expose the personality of the business? Um but I, I think the other interesting thing is, you know, your own conviction builds as well. You know, the more time you spend talking to consumers or, you know, running quant surveys, the more that you just start making better decisions. Um, and, I, and, I, and I know, you know, kind of back to the theme you brought up earlier, what I actually did, you know, pretty quickly became apparent to me there was things, some things very wrong with Grays. Right. But I had the rest of the team to think about. I just started videoing all of the interviews and I just... I, I remember I just sat them all down and played them these videos and they're like, all oh, right, okay, you're right. <laughs> you know, the convenience of delivery is never going to be enough. We're going to have to have a unique product. Yeah. Um, you know, it was just came across so clearly in these videos and they watched it and they felt it themselves. That's in- in- incredible. You talked about the the product a bit and, and I guess that unboxing experience. I mean, it's a, and still is, but like I remember it from from that time as well, a very distinctive product. Like everything about it was distinctive. I think the branding, the boxing, the look and feel. How much time did you and the team? And clearly, clearly you did, but how much time did you invest in that, knowing you were building a distinctive asset, or was it just an evolution over time? Yeah, I think the the box, you know, was a piece of genius. I mean, it was a, a, a single piece of cardboard which didn't require any glue, which could survive the rigors of the post. But as you say, it had this reveal moment built into it, which was really important. People couldn't wait to open their box and all the products would be there looking at them. And there was this sense of randomness, you know, in terms of what have I got this week, which again was, you know, something the business would go on to wrestle with. Um, But that was a real special moment. Um, And, you know, I, I, I think... It's been, you know, endlessly copied now. But I, yeah, I believe it was quite an original idea at the time in terms of the practicality, but also the genuine surprise the consumer felt. Yeah, and was it was it an, an intentional thing, or was it more built out of the requirement to how do we find a box that doesn't need glue and all those kind of things? And then you you landed at this that ended up being quite distinctive. I mean, it's a bit of both. I mean, right. for instance, we learnt that you know people really loved opening the box, and then one of the things we changed is we made um, all the designs on the top of the punnets really beautiful. Mm. Um, and it was because of that first moment when you open it, you want to look and see all these products and, and the variety and the different tastes you're going to experience or the different benefits you're going to get. Um, you, you wanted to communicate that quite vividly to the consumer. And that's quite a lot of work. I mean, I, I think in my time at Grays, we launched 1,600 products. So 1,600 <gasps> pieces of individual artwork had to be done. Um, so I, I, I suppose some of it was by design. Another thing is once you realise what's going on with the consumer, you know where to put your effort. Yeah, yeah. Um, on the the products and the product launches, again, you touched on it a bit, but I, I read and remember hearing you say that you could you could turn a new product around in 24 hours based on a consumer, like consumer insight that was coming in through the data and you're like, there's something in this. Am I correct? It was that fast to get like... Yeah, product? I mean, if the products were in stock, you could literally design a product on an Apple Mac and press a button and it would upload it Amazing. to the line. 
all of the nutritionals and things were auto-generated by a back-end system which had been, been written. So, yeah, I mean, you could. I mean, maybe we, weren't, we, we didn't do it so much once we were a slightly bigger business, but as a yeah. slightly kind of wild startup, which was suited technology fueled, you literally could sit down and <laughs> dream something up and press a button and it would pop out of the factory a day later. It must have been an incredibly creative environment to work in. Um, was it distracting at all? Do you feel people kind of may, might have got distracted by that kind of ability to do whatever? How did you control that? Or did you? I, I, I don't know. I think my problem is I'm not a very strategic marketer. I quite like fiddling and A-B <laughs> testing and, you know, testing and being quite rational. So um, I, you know, you know, it, it had its downside. I mean, the massive upside was when we launched in the US and, we just launched our UK product range and every week we got rid of three or four products and introduced three or four new ones. And what you saw was this extraordinary iteration over six months as we learned what the US market wanted. And I still look back on that and go, it's, it's a good case study on localization. Uh, we could have spent six months doing market research. We would have got it wrong. Tell me a bit more about that, that localization. What, what, what do you mean by that? Well, it was, you know, the flavor profiles, which did well in the UK didn't do well in the US. Gotcha you know, certain cultural illusions, which were kind of baked into the products weren't there. I mean, mango chutney did incredibly badly in America. Right. Okay. Because they don't have an Indian heritage. It's really obvious once you see the data and you've figured it out. So we released, you know, kind of Mexican dips and products. And, you know, that's something which made more sense to the American consumer. Um, now, maybe we could have fi figured that out by having an American team earlier and doing lots of research, but I still maintain the answer we got to was, better as an agile organization iterating behind genuine data versus just trying to be geniuses and guess what americans wanted from their snacks yeah yeah you would have made like oreo nuts or something right like so it wouldn't have wouldn't have worked um, but there were surprises americans loved flapjacks americans really liked uh, european chocolate yeah um so th there was loads of you know contradictions and you know because what you were really doing was it was the truth you were you were getting tens of thousands of data points every hour which were going you were like a retailer going what do people really want and not want? yeah because and i guess you know because it's really interesting when you when you when you get groups of people or you do focus groups and not that there, there's always a place for all these different things but actually how people say they'll behave versus how they actually behave can be wildly different and like when you're taking probably at the time was a reasonably large gamble and bet you know trying to expand to the u.s being able to do that in a more iterative way was probably you know really helpful in terms of not like landing on a couple of big bets that was kind of if these don't go right we're toast yeah and you were getting nationally representative samples versus doing a focus group in new york and you know there, there were you know there, there were many wonderful things about it um now maybe did we not learn certain muscles around talking to the consumers because we were too busy, <laughs> you know, playing leaderboard MPD and who can dream up the next smash hit winner. Yes. You know, it was, it was creative. Um, and, and in that context, I think it worked. Um, in your time at Grey's and how did, how did marketing evolve? Like, obviously, you know, from the early days, I'm guessing it was more, um, you know, probably, lower cost direct you know channels did it expand into kind of more broad reach marketing yeah so i think the biggest change was when we had to go multi-channel right so being a marketer in a consumer goods business is not the same as being a marketer in 
grace. Um, you know, you have different accesses to information, different ways of communicating. You know, fr- frankly, the stakes are also lower in DTC. You can make a mistake and move on very quickly. While if you, if you mess up your big product launch of the year or the you know big supermarket launch, you know, there's uh, the implications are different, and hence people prepare and you know act act in in in, in different ways. Um, I'd also say they're just fundamentally different disciplines. Right. Direct response marketing, utilizing data to optimize adverts is not the same as trying to make, you know, an, an ad idea which, you know, works through traditional media and gets people to pick up things from a supermarket shelf. Yeah. And I guess, you know, obviously a lot of the principles of, of long-term brand building that, you know, Peter Field and Lesbonette would talk about in terms of broad reach, but like the principles of, of kind of broad reach and brand building and, you know, creating fame, distinctive assets will help those short-term activations. So the more direct response works better when you have kind of the combination of the two. And did, did Grays ever go into that kind of broad reach or was it more kind of the physical availability that gave it that broad reach? Yeah. So we, we definitely experiment. I mean, there's a, there's a, you know, a popular, I don't know what we call it, a myth theory, um, around the amount of money you should put into direct response versus the amount of money you should put into sort of building the brand. Yeah. And we played around with those ratios and measured it in a, in a very scientific, um, um, you know, way as, you know, I think a lot of direct-to-consumer businesses struggle with how much to put into the stuff you can see really clearly versus the stuff which you may be able to measure, but over a longer time frame. And if you, you know... Uh, comfortable with econometrics and you know these these sort of approaches um you know i i i'd say that gray's predominantly built its early brand awareness through consumer experience um and direct response ads right so the direct response ads built certain assets in the consumer's mind both positive and negative it became very clear as you know time 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 went on and uh, lots of people opening Gray's boxes and having that experience of the product and the opening in offices or, you know, personally or, you know, in front of their family really built a lot of the kind of better quality, longer term assets. Yeah. Did I think in the first six or seven years we ever convinced ourselves that spending money on million pound TV ads made sense? No. When we were on supermarket shelves, did it make more sense? Yes. Yeah. 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 And, and that, you know, it, it's kind of it's great and interesting to hear that because I think people do struggle with the the timing of it when it's right and you know different industries it's going to be right and and at different times in different ways. What I, what I think you can say emphatically and you know I I, 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 I suspect most people will disagree with me is the quality thinking on design branding messaging um, who is your consumer um, that is all good quality stuff which can't be dismissed wherever you stand on traditional media versus digital and all these other sort of you know debates which rage on yeah yeah makes sense you went from being in cmo at grays to becoming ceo at at grays so what are the things that you when you went into that kind of the ceo role that you could maybe um i guess give advice to other marketers that are kind of saying oh we need to get our ceo to believe more marketing and we touched on it a bit earlier on kind of some of the the jargon and some of those things that we let ourselves down with i think 
yeah, I, look, I, I really believed in marketing at Gray's. The advantage at Gray's is you had all this data, so you could really demonstrate your demonstrable. It was easier in a direct response uh, environment to demonstrate your impact. Right. Um, creative testing, uh, new product launches, churn reduction, customer acquisition cost, um, and you know, you know, Gray's went from a business which maybe sold twelve million pounds to twenty million pounds to forty million pounds, and you know, it was quite clear it was step changes in marketing which were doing that. I, but I, I maintain that the marketing remains the most exciting, important function in an organization when it comes to kind of strategic growth and short-term and, you know, long-term to a certain extent. Yeah. And how, I mean, I guess in a, in a way, having come through marketing, you were a marketing believing CEO. Some CEOs may not be so marketing, you know, or in love with it and see it as um, a necessary, but slightly frustrating function. Uh, how do you think marketing professionals can kind of, win over that type of CEO? I, I, I think you've got to be a bit of a salesperson. And, and, and I don't mean salesperson in terms of, I, I do think there's a lot of marketers who uh, oversell maybe, or you know, um, you know, what can be done. What I mean by sales is you've got to understand who the different audiences are. Right. Um, and how to explain what you can and can't do or explain the importance of some of these very basic building blocks of marketing. And I found that other executives respond really well for that, but yeah. they're just a bit confused. Yeah. Kind of go, and it goes back to maybe your earlier point about, you know, people in different functions are like doing radically different roles. So how in marketing, maybe can we use some of the things we're good at, which is like insight and use that kind of to understand, well, what are the things they care about in their roles and how can I kind of bring that to life for them? And I think your point about selling just is interesting. I, our former CMO, or I work at Indeed, you say, let's not market marketing, which, which I, you know, I like, cause it's not like just kind of a showbiz thing. It's like, you know, um, let's, let's kind of live with the results and, and be honest about it. Yeah. And I, I look, what's the core of sales? It's understanding what's going on in the other person's mind. Mm. Yeah. So it's completely reasonable that the CMO is worried about your two million pound advertising campaign and whether it's actually doing anything for the business. Don't dismiss it or be annoyed. Think about well, has he got a point? And you know, how would I explain it? And you know, kind of make you know, you know, how do I rationalise that risk financially? Or you know, maybe he's in love with testing, and you mm. talk about the testing you're going to do. Maybe you can use case studies from other businesses. Maybe. You can come up with an incredibly clever split test and flush out once and for all <laughs> any of this cost is is justified. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I I think that I see a lot of marketers just being quite annoyed when they're challenged. You know, they believe in this doctrine, and and, and they're just like, oh gosh, I, I can't believe they said that. I'm like, well, <laughs> perfectly reasonable from where I was sitting, you know, and. <laughs> maybe your answer wasn't particularly clear or you came across <laughs> as indignantly dismissive you know etc so yeah I, it, I, I don't know I, I don't know if that's helpful it, no I think it is because I think it is that kind of understanding that perspective and we can get defensive or, or protective of the work that we're doing like of course it's good like you know we know we know what we're doing trust trust marketing right but like trust is built and um, you've you moved on from Grey's and you have gone out um, 
I guess on your on your own. You're you've now set up a, a business, um, Urban Legend. Correct. Yeah, but Believe in Science is the business. Urban I Legend. I was going to say I knew there was a, a a business behind the brand. So Believe in Science, the business, and then Urban Legend, a brand. It is a brand of donuts, but it's totally different in that it's all about healthy food, healthy donuts. Yeah, I mean it, it, it's a radical new way of making junk food. You know, so much of the sugar and fat is removed. You know, a donut has as many calories as a glass of milk or a slice of buttered toast. So it's it's kind of, you know, radical new solutions to making junk food. What was it? Um, look, uh, you know, obviously, I think, you know, not obviously, but, you know, Innocent was health, Grey's health. So, you know, I can see maybe a, a path and interest in health. But what made you move into into the, setting this business up? Yeah, I, I, I think there were two major insights for me, having, you know, Innocent and Grey's both became number one in their respective categories, mm-hmm. but they remained quite small in the scheme of food businesses. And also one thing I come to the conclusion of is the consumer finds it damn hard to change. And if anything, the consumer is eating more and more junk food every year, yeah. you know, despite all these exciting brands and, you know, the efforts of Jamie Oliver and, you know, blockbuster government campaigns, etc. So, you know, in my mind, the, the solution wasn't to ask the consumer to change. It was just to come up with a product that meant that the consumer wasn't consuming as much bad stuff. That it was almost rendered innocuous because you'd removed so much of the sugar and fat. And, you know, maybe also demonstrate to the industry that it is possible. Which, I mean, I think it's incredibly brave to go try to figure that out. Because, like, you know, again, it's a big industry, you know, lots of... Um competition was it um did donuts come first or did the concept of kind of like healthy junk food was that the foundational concept yeah what came first was the consumer isn't going to change and it was actually a meeting with the head nutritionist of public health england and she basically admitted that unless bad stuff came out of the vast majority of what people ate nothing was going to change right and i was just like bollocks i spent the last 11 or 12 years you know, growing greys into something I'm quite proud of. And really it's, you know, it's a business success story, but it's not solving the problem. Right. And this really, you know, ate away at me. And the only conclusion I came to was if the consumer isn't going to change, you know, the industry has to. And the only way the industry is going to change is with a quantum leap in the science of reformulation. So my second insight was, you know, the extent to which, cutting edge scientific kind of work can transform these areas. And again, sorry, kind of going back, probably draws on your chemistry and, you know, that background when it was probably coming to the fore that you, you had probably the, the knowledge of the expertise to see that and kind of see then that, that opportunity, like it was possible. Yeah. And I think, you know, part of this is, you know, and it, it, you know, it, 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 there's many wonderful and dreadful things about it, but, you know, went to Silicon Valley a number of times. And the wonderful things about Silicon Valley is you kind of start with the vision and kind of work your way back. And so I was like, well, what do you need to do? You need to, you need to get this much of the sugar and fat out of the product. And you know, then you can start to go, well, how, how do you get that much sugar and fat out? And what scientific disciplines might be helpful and what solutions might exist on the market? And you, 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 know, you can start to put together a, um, you know, a solution. So I think part of it came from something admirable 
about US entrepreneurship, which is, you know, set yourself a crazy vision. <laughs> you know, dream, dream a bit about the impossible food you want to create. And I think part of it, luckily, because I've been a scientist, you know, I, I think I did have a head start at working with other scientists and I quite like reading science textbooks. <laughs> you know, I was, was happy to read up and get involved with all this stuff myself. Fascinating. And and you, you started out and um, from a recollection, you, there was a, like, did you start with a small shop that you kind of, I remember seeing kind of yeah, the so, initial launch. I mean, having done a lot of direct to consumer and obviously on this podcast, talked it up or certain aspects of it up. <laughs> Um, the, the problem with having arrived at Donuts as the, as the perfect launch product to demonstrate this technology was um, that it doesn't really suit direct consumer. <laughs> um, so the idea behind uh, retail stores was it gave you that flexibility to try different things and be exposed to the consumer, you know, before the next stage of the you know, business came along. And what did you learn from, from, from that? Because, you know, it was a, obviously an initial small start. Um, how did people react yeah, I mean, I mean that's the point. It's back to those videos in Starbucks. Is you see it viscerally firsthand, and you realise the subtlety of messaging. And one change in word can put somebody off versus attract them. Or, you know, what does somebody want in Clapham versus somebody out with their kids on a celebration at the seaside? You start to tune yourself into those differences. I think the other thing it was massively helpful with was, you know, we had to build a custom factory to make all this stuff. And, you know, the shops, it was a more forgiving environment than the retailers to get some things wrong and understand this new process and how well it's actually performed in the winter, in the summer. Right. Getting shaken around in trucks. All the rest of it. <laughs> yeah. But obviously then the ambition was always to get it into kind of the bigger retailers. You've just done a deal recently to, to, to get it into Tesco, am I right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I guess how did that come about? Was it was it based on obviously the success of kind of the the smaller trials? But like that's that's a pretty big thing to get, right? So what were the things that Tesco were looking for? Yeah, I, I mean Tesco, you know, are transforming themselves when it comes to health, and they've set some unbelievable health goals, okay, which um, are, are quite audacious and heavily embedded in their commercial team. So their commercial teams, you know, have to move the needle. You know, the dilemma they face is that healthier options don't sell as fast, um, which is good news because that's the whole point of this business was to come along and provide alternatives to some of the junkiest food on the market, um, but with, you know, extraordinary health claims, Yeah, you know, which, um, you know, kind of won over nutritionists and met their own kind of goals in terms of what they were trying to achieve. So, that, you know, there was that, alignment there I, I mean the other thing going on which I, I i think is a very common problem is is many entrepreneurs who make a consumer good really they tend to be better at the sort of the you know the branding and they often use co-packers and hence their products aren't that very different dif- differently differentiated right the advantage with tesco is none of their suppliers could make this product Okay. So, you know, they, the advantage of having done all the R&D and come up with something genuinely novel, starting with a, a vision which was maybe a little unusual, is that they went, my God, you know, this is like nothing else on the market. We, we want it. And how, you know, I, I think one of the things you often see in, I think, healthier foods is, you know, 
big claims on packaging, 50% less this, less that. And sometimes me being cynical as I am, I'm looking going, well, you've just put less in the fucking packet. <laughs> like it's just, there's 50% less stuff. So there's 50% less fat, right? Whatever. How have you overcome maybe that, that, or have you had to, or is it just like, actually this product is the, the same size as your yeah, competitor? Yeah. Absolutely. So, I mean, the, 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 gov- the government, I mean, it gets, you know, you know, the, the policymakers maybe more precisely base everything off per hundred mil. So their view is uh, all comparisons should always be done off the fundamental apples with apples um, comparison. And, you know, that's how we've designed it. I mean, there's a hundred ways to trick the consumer. Mm. Um, really, I've got no interest in them because we're trying to solve this problem here. And we're trying to demonstrate that you can radically reformulate junk food and make it cool and exciting to the consumer. There's no and, point in using no, you know, all these yeah. tricky workarounds and things. And, you know, one of the things, you know, I guess as well is you know, people label reading, like people being able to take a label, read it and kind of go, this is less fat or less sugar. You, you're not relying on that with, with this product. You're just relying on kind of the, I guess, the fundamental foundation of the product. It's a healthier product. So you're not requiring people to pick up a box and understand that label. I think we're still trying to work some of this stuff out and, you know, back to the you know conversation on greys. Um, yeah, and, you know, this is the, this is the fascinating thing about you know, brands and products and consumers is you're trying to get to the bottom of the best way of doing it. And I don't believe what's on the market at the moment is our best donut. And I don't believe what on the market is, you know, the best example of how to market that donut. How are you thinking now about marketing? In terms of uh, just growing this this brand, I mean, it's yeah. it's new, it's starting. You now distribution is growing. So I think there's there's two aspects to it in my mind. I think one is going back to getting the basics right. So who is the consumer? What is the message? Is the branding performing? How does the branding and the messaging work across different p- touch points? Are some better than others? What are the touch points or adverts we need to introduce? Is it going to work across those? Um, so I, I still think at a stage of business like this, that is the majority of the work of a marketer is trying to figure, you know, these things, these things out. Um, you know, most of our advertising is the physical presences we have. So we have stores, which people walk by, we're going to be opening more stores in, (laughs) you know, you know, higher football locations. We have this extraordinary point of sale in Tesco's, Mm. you know, how can we use that? Um, do we do social and PR? Yes. Will we do more of it? Of course. As you know, we get confident on the messaging. Is there going to be a big advertising campaign at some stage? Yes, absolutely. But I wouldn't do the big advertising campaign until you're pretty sure <laughs> you know what to say. Yeah. And the great, obviously, you know, you know this, but like the, the great advantage of digital channels is you can test that messaging, get it right, you know, see even creatively what's working on, on your social channels. And then, you know, when you get into that big creative piece of work in terms of, you know, traditional TV advertising, which is expensive to make and expensive to uh, get out there, you, I guess, have more confidence in in that. But yet you still probably, there's risks with that. Because that's like, that's a huge expense for a new business when you get to that point. Correct. I mean, there are things we've, you know, done in the sort of design of the business model, you know, the, the business model is designed to have distinctive point of sale in supermarkets, you know, in terms of the cabinet and the way that you shop it. 
um, the business is deliberately only targeting London to start with to sort of lower the hurdle in terms of you know building that original um, uh, you know uh, awareness. So th these are kind of very mindful decisions we've made to go look. How do we make this easier for ourselves at first? Um, have there been any kind of big learnings so far in this that you have been unexpected? maybe base when you reflect on your Gray's experience? I know they're very different, but you're thinking, well, if I take this over here, it might work. Uh, has there anything that you kind of had hoped worked that hasn't yet? This is the surprising thing is there's a lot more similarities and differences okay. in, a, in terms of, the, the, you know, the, the challenges you face as a business or as a marketer are surprisingly similar, innocent to Gray's, to urban legend, in terms of the, you know, the stage of the business, but also emotionally how you feel, you know, um, the you know have there been surprises yeah i think when i sat down and originally did the branding um i had this idea that you could introduce the health message very late in the customer journey okay you know i don't believe that's true anymore as in i, I just think that's a mistake and the idea was people had sort of tasted the product and then it was a surprise that they discovered that it was so different um what we found is practically that just doesn't really work. That's interesting. So your your belief was like make them love like the, make them love the product. Or this is amazing. It's one Take of the best the products and then ever. drop the bombshell. Yeah, and they're like, God, uh, it's healthier. Like, <laughs> exactly because they believe then because they're yeah. tasting it. Um, and you know the worry was if you went out and marketed yourself too much as a health brand, people wouldn't even get to try it. Yeah, or maybe they would try it in a prejudiced way. Uh, um, and, you know, I, I think the advantage of going stores first, our own stores first, a bit like D2C first, is we've kind of survived learning that mistake and, you know, lots of things are changing. And were you doing trialing, you know, in and around the stores to kind of get people to just taste that initial, that first, you know, Correct. small and, piece of a donut? And, you know, you try lots of different scripts. And, you know, I, I think what we know is what is the perfect script to win over the vast majority of people sampling now and, I think part of the question is how do you then translate that <laughs> into all the touch points of a modern business and uh you know you know does it translate that script and into visuals and words and images and all the rest of it when you look out at kind of not necessarily your direct competitor set but but maybe others doing similar things to you in terms of you know new startups challenging convention are there brands out there that you are really admiring and you think are doing amazing work yeah, I think one of one of my favourites for quite a while has been Huel. Um, yeah, and I, I, you know, what I love about Huel is it's just so damn audacious, you know, and uh, you know, telling a consumer that they should drink lunch and you know get their complete solution. Um, so you know, I've been a fan of that uh, of that brand. I've been curious about it, and you know, increasingly a fan as they've worked out how to do it and build these loyal followings who sort of buy into this very radical habit change. Obviously, I've wimped out of that, uh, as, as I was very clear that part of the reason behind Urban Legend is I don't want to ask the consumer to make a major habit change. I think it's difficult, but, you know, you'll definitely have achieved it. Yeah, that's that's, that's interesting. Very different then. And um, wh where next then for Believe in, in Science? I mean, it feels like you're only, you're only at like the tip of the iceberg in terms of what is possible. Um, what, are the, what are the ambitious plans, the audacious plans? I mean, you know, back to those two insights for starting the business, you know, 
part of the reason behind this business was to demonstrate what science, well-invested science in this area could, could do. And um, it, we've been spending a lot of time and money on R&D, and that will mean many wonderful things, which you're going to have to wait for, but you know, <laughs> the donut is, is, is obviously only one way yeah. of interpreting this vision. I, I, that's a great, I love that way of putting, a way of interpreting the vision, you know, so you're, you're definitely, I definitely see it as only, only the start um, of, of this journey. I, I've only got a couple more questions for you. My next one is you, I would get the sense are incredibly busy, a lot going on. How do you, and what do you do like to kind of get away from it all? <laughs> like, do you, I don't want to say de-stress because I don't want to apply your stress, but like it's busy is a lot. What are the things you do to kind of get time for, for you? Yeah, I think there's, there's a couple of things. I, I um, now live in the countryside and I swim in a river by my house in the morning. Nice. If you jump into cold water, that definitely uh, <laughs> distracts you momentarily at least. Um, the, the other thing I think is key is how do you remain motivated and aware of the dangers without letting them affect you emotionally? So I, I think one thing I've learned is how to, and care less is the wrong phrase, but I still care, but not let it emotionally affect me, the body blows which okay. come with doing this, um, which I think is important because I just think, you know, it ruins people. How do you do that? Because like that heightened sense of, sense of, I guess, anxiety affects everything, sleep, performance, you know, all aspects of life. And I don't know whether it's just time. Okay. And, you know, how many stressful situations you've been through. So your body almost <laughs> kind of goes, right, okay, I'm going to start responding to this. Or whether there is a mindfulness to it where you literally mm. go, I am not going to respond to this situation. That's what I was wondering. Is it, is it a purposeful... And maybe the two are connected. With the experience comes the ability to purposely think, I'm not going to, because I know I know the outcome of reacting to the situation. I, I believe that there's a, that being incredibly mindful of the stimuluses and how they're affecting you and going, I'm going to disconnect, you know, this worry from my body dumping a load of stress hormones into my blood. <laughs> I think it works or it certainly has worked for me and been yeah. helpful. And if you can do that, then you don't have to do all the crazy things like, um, you know, run an ultra marathon every weekend. And, <laughs> yeah. you, know, you know, there's a lot of ways of basically trying to counter the stress, yeah. which I see as sticky plasters, which ultimately can fail versus just not getting stressed in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, listen, if you, and if you're ever, I have one more question, which I'll get to, but if you're ever over here in Ireland, come down to us here in Greystones. We live right beside the sea. Do it in February or March when it's really cold and we go for a dip in the sea together. <laughs> You're more than welcome. <laughs> if, 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 if my mindfulness doesn't work and I get stressed, I will. Uh, <laughs> I did turn up at a friend's house on the seaside the other day and, and said, sorry, I've, I've had a stressful day. I'm going for a, I need to go for a swim in the sea first. <laughs> Which they were, they were quite all right with. But um, yeah, I think again, they were. it was pretty forward of me. Yeah, no, well, yeah, I think that's a, that's a theme. Um, this, my last question has come from my previous guest, which is uh, a lady called Loretta Dignam, who uh, has had an incredible marketing career uh, in Ireland and Sweden, working with the likes of Mars, um, Diageo, Vallejo Foods. And I asked her to ask a question of my next guest, which is, which is you. And her question was, what do you want your legacy 
to be? I tell you, the thing which makes me most proud, which is maybe a bit different, is I feel I got such a leg up on everything I did because of the experience I had at Innocent Drinks. I just thought it was a tremendous experience. And, you know, the, the guys who run it, you know, were so ahead of their time and generous to me per- personally and the experience, of course. And it, it, it has felt good that so many people from Grays have gone on to be successful entrepreneurs or I think 11 or 12 CEOs now kind of from, you know, there. I don't know if that's a legacy, but it mm. definitely is a nice, wholesome feeling. And uh, it feels a bit like, well, I benefited from it. It's good that Grays has had a similar effect. Amazing. No, I th- that's, that is wonderful. That is wonderful. Um, I'll put you in the spot and see if you would have a question without knowing who my next guest is going to be, a question you'd like to ask somebody from the marketing community. Yeah, I've no problem with being put on the spot. How about we go back to the theme from earlier in the podcast about explaining marketing to other people? Yeah. Why don't we go through how do you explain what is a brand to the CFO? Brilliant. I lo- oh, I love that. Excellent. Excellent. Um, listen, we are at, at time. Anthony, thank you so much for taking the time uh, with, with me today. I, As I said to you, I, I got to see you speak at, at an event many years ago and just was fascinated by your story. And so have have been watching your progression unbeknownst to you. So I appreciate, not in a stalker way, but I appreciate you taking the time to, to talk to me today. Thanks very much, Connor. As we finished up, Anthony jokingly said, right, I'm off to fight some fires. I suspect he was, but also that he did it in a calm and considered way. He's experienced so much that he's able to see things from multiple perspectives. He understands marketing, both theory and practice, but also understands what investors and boards need to know. I often think of how we as a function in our organizations need to up-level our discussions and our impact and think Anthony has demonstrated that this can be done. So that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to That's What I Call Marketing. If you did enjoy it, please do share and add comments with your feedback and follow us on Twitter at that's underscore marketing. And if you or someone you know will be a great guest for the podcast, get in touch. I'll add the email address into the show description. For me, Connor Byrne, until the next episode, take care.